teenage sisters who want to make it big in entertainment hitchhike across the country to California to make their dreams come true. When the heat gets to them in Texas, they decide to take a swim in a small pond. The local law apprehends them, and they are arrested for vagrancy and hitchhiking. They are sentenced to 30 days. But rather than confinement, they are put on a work farm. They think it's a break, but they'll find out otherwise. Them and all the other untamed youth. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. The Dallas multipass. Multi Lena, uh, multi you know the small You're stupid mimes. Stupid, stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can, and sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly. You know, often on the show, I use the film that we are discussing as a way to talk a little film history. In today's show, I'm going to do just that. We're talking about Untamed Youth from 1957, and that gives me an excuse to talk about the lead actress, Mamie Van Doren. Of course, the film Untamed Youth was featured in an early episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And in the second part of today's show, Nancy will be here to tell us all about it. It's always a treat for me to hear Nancy's perspective. You know, in the past, we tried to do it the other way around once in a while, where she'd do the history part, and I'd talk about the Mystery Science Theater episode. And I think we both discovered we like it this way, because I enjoy researching the history more, and I know Nancy loves to talk about Mystery Science Theater. Now, I read somewhere that to be a successful podcast, you must make it personal. You need to let your listeners know a little bit about you, you know, and... uh, create a relationship with those that listen to the show. So here I go. I'm an old man. I'm married. I have two adult children. I have three mice as pets. And it's snowing outside here in the Midwest. Now on with the show. Now I was talking to Russell about this episode. Russell who contributes to the show every now and again. And he mentioned that Michael Medved of the Golden Turkey Awards ranked Mammy Van Dorn as one of the worst actresses of all time. He actually said that the worst was Raquel Welch, but Candace Bergen and Mamie Van Dorn were nominees. And I think that's stupid. I don't agree with Michael Medved at all. In fact, I rarely agree with Michael Medved. Anyway, Van Dorn is perfectly fine for what she does. I think she knows who she is and just has fun with it. As far as I know, she's never taken herself as a serious actress. Now, whether you like her acting or not, you have to admit, while watching this movie, she isn't phoning in her performance. She's, she's going for it. I've got ambition, that's all. I'm going to make it to the top. I know I've got what it takes. Yes, she's never been in danger of winning an Academy Award. And she's perfectly fine in this rock and roll film. Trust me, I've seen worse acting. I mean, you're not coming to this movie to see Ingrid Bergman or Richard Burton, right? You know what you're getting into when you turn on this flick. Now, the film shows her body over and over again. And I get the jiggles. Everything wiggles. 
I've read that her measurements were 43, 26, 36. She once said, I don't even want to say double D because they're even bigger than that. And she always claimed that her um, assets were natural. Miss Van Doren, believe it or not, has had a 50-year acting career both on the stage and on the screen. She has written books and recorded music and is actually still around these days as of this recording. I thought I'd talk a little bit about her before we get into Untamed Youth. She was born Joan Lucille Olander on February 6, 1931, in the small town of Rowena, South Dakota, and grew up on a farm with no running water or electricity. As a child, she was always encouraged to sing and dance, but she was a sickly child, having three operations before the age of seven. In 1939, the family moved to Sioux City, Iowa. Mamie would later say, When I look back on my early days in Rowena and Sioux City, it seems to me I must have been born into show business. I always liked dancing and singing. Sometimes liked a little showing off, I guess. But I really liked to appear in front of people. In May of 1942, as World War II began to be fought, the family moved to Los Angeles. Soon after arriving, Joan and her parents stood outside the famous Hollywood nightclub Macambo and watched celebrities arrive. At one point, Joan went beyond the barrier that separated the famous people from the ordinary and asked for an autograph from one of Hollywood's first sex symbols, Mae West. Mae wrote, Best of luck, Joanie, a very pretty girl. The young, impressionable child knew from that moment on that one day she wanted to be the toast of Hollywood, to be adored, envied, and catered to. She wanted to be a star. Joan would return night after night to watch the celebrities arrive. That same year, she experienced a life-changing event. She kissed a 13-year-old boy. She said, I can trace back my own sex life to that first kiss. And after that, wham, zowie, whoops. I remember it as if it was yesterday. I liked it so much I wanted more, much more. I can trace back my own sex life to that first kiss. And in her autobiography, she mentions that she would have sex with any man she wanted, whenever she wanted, and has a long list of her, um, conquests. Don't be dirty-minded. Now, while working as an usherette at the Pantages Theater, wearing the uniform, you know, the pillbox hat and carrying a flashlight, she came up with a plan for success. Lana Turner once said that she was discovered sitting at the counter of a top hat malt shop while drinking a Coke. Now, the story has been incorrectly repeated, that she had been discovered at a Schwab's drugstore in Los Angeles, not at the Top Hat malt shop. This is what Joan heard. So, after dyeing her hair blonde, she began to hang out at Schwab's, hoping to be discovered. And she sort of was. She was offered a job on local television, but appeared mostly in the background. In the summer of 1949, at the age of 18, Joan was with her mother in Palm Springs, Florida, on a vacation. It was there she entered a beauty contest and won Miss Palm Springs. Returning home, she won Miss 8-Ball back in Los Angeles. The beauty contest wins caught the eye of Howard Hughes, who at the time owned RKO Film Studios. He offered her a contract, as he did to many young starlets, that he wanted to sleep with. And it must have worked because, according to Mammy, she did sleep with him. 
She began with a short, uncredited scene in Jet Pilot, which began filming in 1949, but wouldn't be released till 1957 due to Howard Hughes' constant tinkering, something he often did. In between, she appeared in a dozen or so films for RKO, usually uncredited. She was in His Kind of Woman in 1951, which starred Robert Mitchum, Jane Russell, and Vincent Price. If you blink, you'd miss me, Mamie said. I look barely old enough to drive. She realized she needed acting lessons and began to study the art of acting, but even with that, she was turned down by both MGM and 20th Century Fox for apparently looking too much like Marilyn Monroe. On January 20th, 1953, Van Doren signed a contract with Universal Studios. They had the idea they would use her to compete with 20th Century Fox's Marilyn Monroe. Mamie later said, I've never been a Marilyn Monroe wannabe. I've always been happy in my own skin. And it was at that point that Joan Lucille Olander became Mamie Van Doren. Mamie came from President Eisenhower's wife, and Van Doren came from the famous American intellectual family. She was in two films starring Tony Curtis in 1953, Forbidden and The All-American, but her career never really took off at Universal, so after a few years, she began taking larger roles in independent films. The first of these films is the subject of today's episode, Untamed Youth in 1957, a rowdy rock and roll story about two eye-catching sisters. Many consider Jane Mansfield's 1956 film, The Girl Can't Help It, as the first rock and roll film, but Mamie in Untamed Youth, which did come out a year later, has Van Doren both singing and dancing, so perhaps she was the first actress to sing rock and roll on film. Rolling like a rolling stone. Look, I know Untamed Youth isn't a very good movie, but I actually enjoy it, even without the MST3K treatment. I think it's just a lot of fun for what it is. Silly, yes, but you know... It was directed by Howard W. Koch. Howard directed a bunch of low-budget films in the 50s and did some TV as well. He's more famous as a producer with films like The Manchurian Candidate from 62, The Other Side of Midnight from 77, Airplane from 1980, and Ghost from 1990. Now, besides Van Doren, the film also stars as her sister, Lori Nelson. Gee, I don't know. Some people just can't take this kind of hard work. I read a 1957 review for the film Untamed Youth, and they call Lori one of Hollywood's most beautiful blondes, and I can't argue. Lori lived from 1933 to 2020 and was in a bunch of films in the 50s like The All-American in 53, Revenge of the Creature and Day the World Ended, both in 55, and Hot Rod Girl in 1956. She also did a lot of TV work, most famously the show How to Marry a Millionaire, based on the Marilyn Monroe film. She starred with Barbara Eden. After all, I didn't send for you. I didn't offer to hear you sing. You came up here of your own free will. You promoted yourself with Pinky to have him call. No! Now, just a minute, I haven't finished. John Russell plays Russ Trapp. 
Russell lived from 1921 to 1991 and was an American film and television actor who was most famous for the role of Marshall Van Troop in the ABC Western television series Lawman that was on from 1958 to 1962. Now, in Untamed Youth, he's the bad guy, the heavy, the villain who will get his in the end. He's all business. Yeah, all kinds, including shady, fishy, funny. And monkey business. Yvonne Lyme plays the pretty girl who is called Baby in the film. How old are you, Baby? Nineteen. How did you know to call me that? What? That's what everybody calls me. Baby. <laughs> I should think so. She was born in 1935 and is still alive as of this recording. Lyme mostly did TV work through the 50s and 60s, and is perfectly cast in this film as the innocent, pretty, tragic inmate of the work farm. The only other cast member I want to talk about is Eddie Cochran. Bone, bone, you can make a mirror laugh, or make a me cry, or shake the stars right out of the sky, but you ain't gonna make a cotton bricker out of me. Bone, 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 no, you ain't gonna make a cotton bricker out of me. I find it interesting that Joel and the Bots make fun of his singing, and I'm like, but that's rock and roll star Eddie Cochran, the man who had hits like 20 Flight Rock and Summertime Blues. Ooh, well, I gotta get over the record machine when it comes to rock and she's a queen. We love to dance on a Saturday night. Oh, no more I can hold her tight, but she lives on the 20th floor of town. The elevator's broken down, so I walk one, five, three, five, four. Five, six, seven, flat, eight, flat, more. Up on the twelfth, I'm starting to drag. Fifty to four, I'm ready to sag. Get to the top, I'm too tired to rock. It was Cochran's 20-flight rock that got Paul McCartney into the Beatles. Now, if you don't know the name Eddie Cochran, that's because his career was cut short when, at the young age of 21, was tragically killed in a car accident. So what is Untamed Youth all about? Well, you see, there's these two sisters, Penny and Jane Lowe, and and they're hitchhiking from Illinois to California. Where do you live? Duquoin. Do what? Duquoin, Illinois. The biggest county fair in the country. Sulky races and everything. That's where we got our start. Entertaining. Striptease. Songs, dances, skits, Don't any. bother briefing him. And I did look up Ducoy, Illinois, and they are known for their county fair, so the movie got something right. They're caught skinny-dipping in a pond by a corrupt sheriff who's played by Robert Folk. Judge Cecilia Steele, played by Lorene Tuttle, sentences the two sisters to work on a cotton farm, which is under the control of Russ Trapp. You may serve your sentence in the county jail. Or you may serve it as agricultural workers on a ranch. There you will be housed and fed. You will do healthy outdoor work for which you will be paid. And you will regain your self-respect. We never lost it, Your Honor. Trapp and the judge are secretly married. Shh. He uses those sentenced to his farm as cheap labor. Now the son of the judge, Bob Steele, played by Don Burnett, shows up and gets a job on the farm, and he soon falls in love with Penny. And while all this is going on, the teenagers who work at the farm sing and dance whenever they have a chance. Oh, wiggling, jiggling, wiggling, rock, jiggling, wiggling, wiggling, rock, jiggling, wiggling, wiggling, 
And as we watch, we all wonder, will Judge Steele realize who her lover really is? The evil Russ Trapp. At least that's the idea. Now the story goes that when Untamed Youth was first released, it got horrible reviews and looked for certain to be a box office failure. Funny, however, how some things work out. You see, the high and mighty Catholic Legion of Decency publicly condemned the film. And suddenly, a lot of people wanted to go see it. Probably a lot of the younger generation. To find out what all the fuss was about. I found one review that finished by saying, It's cynically constructed sucker bait in which sex and rock and roll and violence are all mixed. And another called Bandoran's Dancing, too suggestive to be entertaining. Again, geniuses, if you're trying to keep kids away from the movie, you're doing it all wrong. Anyway, the film's only 80 minutes, so there wasn't much cut out of the film for the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. Just a few little lines here and there, and I'm not going to tell you all about that. I'm going to turn it over to Nancy, who's going to tell us all about the fun. Ah, uh, season one. The days before TV's Frank. It was a different time. The writing was a bit more loose and freeform. Larry was more of a partner for Dr. Forrester, whereas Frank would prove to be a true minion. Later seasons feature a lot of callbacks to these early episodes. These were the days before MST3K became wildly popular for a geeky subset of old movie enthusiasts, and you can feel it in the intro host segments. 30 seconds to commercial Hey everybody, I'm Joel. I'm marooned in outer space on the satellite of love, and I'm the subject of a bizarre movie-watching experiment. Now I guess uh, so are you. I'm up here with my two homemade buddies, Crow and uh, Tom Servo here, yeah. And uh, we're working on Tom Servo. Now, if you're an old fan of MST3K, get your hands on a copy of the Amazing Colossal Episode Guide, published in 1996. It covers the first six seasons of the show, with commentary by the various writers and producers. As I record this segment, it's been 27 years since it was printed. Good grief. I picked up my copy as soon as it was available during a dark period of my life when I found the silly camaraderie of the show very comforting. I know I'm not the only fan who enjoyed the show as a substitute for watching and heckling bad movies with real-life friends. Anywho, Kevin Murphy, with the show since its inception, and who took over voicing Tom Servo in Season 2, wrote the synopsis of this episode, and I'm going to reference it a few times because, well, he has a way with words. In the first host segment after the break, it's invention exchange time. Based on the idea that even smokers can't stand the smell of smoke, Joel has come up with a pipe that won't let you light up. With a built-in smoke detector and fire extinguishing system, it's basically a novelty clown squirting flower gag. Down in Deep 13, the Mads have something weird up their sleeves, as per usual. Now, Lair and I have discovered that children adore putting things in their mouth, and they love puppets. We've combined the two, put a little spin on it. We call it Tongue Puppets. The show, Larry. Hey, everybody, it's me, Mr. Skanky. Oh, I love everybody here. The extreme close-up of Larry's mouth with a wiggly rubber puppet hanging out is 
well, disturbing, and elicits an appropriate response from Joel. I think you might win the award for the most unsanitary toy. Well, thank, thank you. you That's really much. nice. Well, well done. Congratulations. Absolutely. Then we're off to the movies. Your film today, Joel, is a little teen exploitation film called Untamed Youth. And, uh, well, it stars the grand dame of pimply teenage romps, the queen of adolescent angst, Mamie Van Hooter. Doran. Doran. Mamie Van Doren. It's got hip cats, cool chicks, insensitive authority figures, and a few show-stopping production numbers. Enjoy, if you can. Oh, we got movie star, let's go! The opening of this film is a perfect spot for my first Kevin Murphy reference, and I quote, Mamie Van Doren sparkles with boobs akimbo in this 50s teen prison farm potboiler. No opportunity to show her in her underwear is wasted. Penny, Van Doren, and her sister Jane are arrested for swimming in, guess what, their underwear, unquote. It's an over-the-top scene with a lecherous law enforcement officer repeatedly ordering the girls to get out of the pond. Of course, this whole film is over-the-top, so I'll try not to use that phrase again. We also get our first real joke, which always gets a laugh out of me because, as stated earlier, I'm old. I admit... Oh, hi, Landis. What you doing, fishing? No, just sexually harassing a few teens. They're swimming with their high heels on. Oh, no, you stick to your cotton picking. My cotton picking what? It turns out the girls are entertainers on the county fair circuit on their way to Los Angeles, presumably to bigger and better things. They manage to get an immediate court date where a pompous lady judge lectures them on the dangers of hitchhiking. Despite the girls' musical instruments and luggage and the fact that they are dressed rather nicely, the judge comes down hard on them as vagrants and sets up the second solid joke in this episode. You are vagrants without visible means of support. Oh, I wouldn't say that. The sisters are sentenced to 30 days, which they can choose to spend in the county lockup or on a, quote, ranch doing healthy outdoor work for which you will be paid, unquote. Yeah, it's a work farm scam. Sadly, the girls choose the farm, and thus endeth the first plot point. We eventually learn that the lady judge is basically a cougar who has the hots for Mr. Trop, the guy managing the work farm, and routinely sends him slave labor to keep in his good graces. One of the extra creepy things about this film, and let's just be honest and call it a teen exploitation film thinly disguised as a cautionary tale, is the sultry, sexy jazz music cues at every turn. Killer sax, man. It's not really appropriate, and it so wants to suggest something skeevy is going on in an extremely on-the-nose sort of way. On a side note, the reviewing the new recruits moment when the sisters arrive at the farm, along with a clown car full of other teens, features the manager, Trop, leading a pair of Doberman pinchers. Now, just as in Manos, The Hands of Fate, these dogs were chosen for their menacing appearance, but are obviously just a pair of nice, well-behaved puppers, so the apprehension of the teens as they troop by them is just kind of comical. In the next moment, we jump into the first musical number. In the girls' dorm, bunkhouse thing, 
Penny, Van Doren, is in the middle of a song about being a rolling stone. Of course, she's just in her slip. Most of the other girls are also in underwear, or just a towel, because of course they are. Whomever choreographed this number decided to go with the song's Elvis-esque vibe, and Van Doren's move involve a lot of gyration. That guitar makes amazing sound. Hey, look, it's Greg Brady! It's also at this point that Joel and the bots notice that one of the girls looks bewilderingly like Greg Brady from The Brady Bunch. I hate to say it, but they're not wrong. Get out of here, you people! Tell, Tell them, Greg. You got I ain't interested in seeing. For the second host segment, it's a tribute to Greg Brady. They cover the fictitious character's TV career and then kind of spin out of control, fabricating his subsequent life. The bit ends with a screen cap of the woman who looks like Greg Brady in a heart-shaped frame. This elaborate segment was purely inspired by the fact that one woman bears a slight resemblance to Barry Williams, who played Greg on the 70s-era sitcom. It seemed America had lost Greg Brady. He was nowhere to be found until Christmas 1988. Greg was found at a hospital in California. It was him. It was Dr. Greg Brady. He had become a doctor. Greg Brady. He returned to his boy home, boyhood home with his entire family, and a very Brady Christmas was had by all. Thank you. What? Greg, Greg Brady. We have the satellite of love. Salute you. You're one of the good ones. Thank you, Greg. You are groovy. Then, in a scene that doesn't really go anywhere, we're back to the movie, where the creepy judge's straight-arrow son, Bob, just out of the Navy, rolls up to the farm on his motorcycle, looking for a job driving a harvester. He gets the job. Moving on, Trop works on a deal to hire out his workers to neighboring farms for a hefty cut of the profits. Then we cut to the kids out picking cotton, where one of the boys busts out into an extremely Elvis-inspired song. Stupidest crook in the world, he steals cotton. Oh, you ain't gonna make a cotton picker out of me. Boom, boom, boom. No, you ain't gonna Shut make up. a cotton Don't even start. out of me. You know, the acoustics in that cotton patch are fantastic. The bouncy tune, and especially his singing style, are so blatantly imitative of Elvis that I'm surprised the filmmakers weren't slapped with a lawsuit. Elvis has left the cotton field. Hey, get me, I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> look at that. Let's get real lonely in the field. Look at that. Hey, look, way in the back. It's Eli Whitney. <laughs> After the break, we cut to Trop visiting the judge, who is uh, <clears throat> extremely delighted to see him. Honey, you could have phoned. I thought I'd catch you with another man. Oh, they left hours ago. There's a wee bit of tension as the judge wants to make their relationship public, but Trop likes the sweet deal he has going with her, providing him with constant stream of cheap labor. Why can't we bring things out in the open? All right. And ruin the whole setup? Oh, cease, that's crazy. Things might start to get shaky as it is. What do you mean? Labor's so scarce this season. The other ranchers are beginning to bellyache. It's only natural when they drive by my places and see I've got crews at work. Well, maybe it'd be only fair to certify some prisoners to them. Fair? Fair? 
I'm not interested in what's fair. I'm only interested was, in stuff that makes my head look bigger. You know that I spent $2,000 like in the right places to get those... Back at the farm, after the back-breaking work is done, the kids throw a sock hop. Seriously, you'd think they wouldn't have the energy for that kind of thing. It's the rockinest prison ever. For the third host segment, Crow has a flashback to the time Joel hooked up Gypsy's brain to Cambot so they could see what she was thinking. If you're a fan of the show, you can probably guess what that is. Cambot, just roll back the entire contents of Gypsy's brain and put it on the main viewer. This won't take long. Well, this will be the first time anyone has ever been able to see what a computer is actually thinking. Well, there it is. What is it? Oh, it's an 8x10 of Richard Basehart and some RAM chips. Oh, brother, another great mystery of the universe explained. Back in the movie, that sock hop is still hopping. Now with extra sass, courtesy of yet another suggestive song performed by Jane, this time in actual clothing. It seems Mr. Trop also owns the local TV station, and the cook thinks Trop would love to showcase her golden voice there. Sister Jane is dubious about Trop's real intentions, but Penny has ambitions. Will you stop trying to keep me under an umbrella? I'm my own umbrella. I'm going to be way out in front of those people. You no, know I've got what it takes, and, and if Mr. Trop can help me, can get things started, so much the better. Oh, you can trust me, Janie. I'm not going to make any nasty bargains, no matter what. Unless your name comes up. An hour and a half later, Penny is still up at the big house, and Jane is worried. When Bob, the judge's son, happens by, she asks him for help. Look, couldn't you maybe go up there and, and pretend to want to see Mr. Trop? Well, not very well, not without some reason. You see, I'm a method actor. Well, I think I have one. Oh, good. On one condition. You pushed me around in a wheelbarrow dressed as a Spartan. It's a good thing, too, because when he gets there, he interrupts Trop putting the moves on Penny, which isn't really much of a surprise. Later, Trop goes to the judge with some concerns. What you mean is you wanted to talk about Bob. Well, I'm using you, you to get to him. No, baby, of course not. I wanted to have some time with you alone. Look, believe me, kitten, I, I'm thinking about you. But Bob's no kid. He's, he's inquisitive. He's been around. Now he's got to figure out our setup. Setup? Don't use that term, Russ. That's a gangster's term. What we're doing is absolutely legal. Uh, except for the parts that aren't. We saw to that. Turns out, Bob is going to be a fly in that illegal ointment. One of the cute things about this movie, and other 50s movies about the foibles of youth, like, say, the Beatniks, and others riffed by MST3K, is the, hello, fellow young persons, type writing. Just randomly injecting Hepcat lingo into the script doesn't really play well when the characters look like they just escaped from the set of Leave It to Beaver. Looking at the head of the crew. Oh, good. I thought maybe that crocodile trop got her. Well, you don't seem worried about him getting me. No, I don't have to worry about you. You can take care of yourself, you little wildcat. You little buffalo. Thanks, Bob. You're real gone. Well, thanks. I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure I'm still here. 
Yeah, you're, you're real gone yourself. They're both gone. What happened? What happened They're left. At this point, the events start coming on the quick fast. One of the youngest girls at the farm, who everybody calls Baby, passes out in the field, and in a dark turn, she dies from a miscarriage. When Bob confronts his mom about what's going on at the farm, she breaks down and admits she's married to Trop. Bob leaves to confront Trop. Judge Mom calls in a deputy to go inspect the farm. Bob squares off with Trop, threatens to quit, and then tells Janie he loves her. Then, thank goodness, it's time for another host segment. Now, apparently the writers thought the declaration of love between Bob and Jane was kind of boring because they have Joel and the bots basically talking over the whole thing. The bots want to know what cotton is, so Joel has Gypsy cough some up. It's icky. For the fourth host segment, Gypsy has gone overboard replicating cotton, and yards and yards of batting are piling up. Oh, Gypsy, honey, look at this. You are sick, aren't you? Oh, my goodness. Oh. Oh, hey, Joel, this down, is great. Down, this oh. is great. Kawabunga! I feel like Rosemary Clooney in White Christmas. Having a little trouble with that uh, gypsy unit, huh? Yeah, it's something with their off switch, I think. I can't get it to stop. Tom, of course, gets a kick out of suggesting more things for her to barf up. Saltwater taffy, paper towels, and finally a sort of half-baked Tom servo. This is the first duplicate servo in a long line of future incidents. But Joel has had enough and banishes servo from the bridge. And then it's commercial sign. Whew. After the break, the developments come even faster and furiouser. First, Jane tells Judge Steele what's up. The judge is not amused. Next, it's another regulation musical number, this one with basically the same chord progression and time signature as all the other ones, but with an extra disturbing kind of chorus. She's just reading the stage directions. Nice lighting. Then a mysterious Mexican man appears for a clandestine meeting with Trop out behind the tractor barn. He says he can get Trop a whole passel of illegal immigrant workers for cheap. Trop certainly can't pass up a bargain, can he? What he also does is catch Bob and one of the Spanish-speaking girls spying on them. And just when things are about to get hairy, Judge Mom shows up to save the day. And Trop and the coyote are off to jail. Our story ends with Bob and Jane and Judge Mom watching Penny shake her dinners on the TV. Okay, John, shake the banana. Come on, boys, and carry my bananas. What in the world does that mean? Carry my bananas? I don't want to know. It's a metaphor. Even though the sisters were a duo, Jane seems just fine with losing her part in the act because now she has dishy Bob forever. The end. The final host segment has the bots asking Joel a serious question. Okay, well, what can I do you for? Oh, uh, well, we were down in the galley playing freeze tag, and uh, we started wondering about that goofy mutant Charlie Callis guy in a film. You know, that bespectacled weenie that no one would dance with? What's right, the story on right, him? Right, I think I know what you mean. Cambot, could you put up frame 232.5, and uh, I think it's somewhere around there. Let's check it out. Yeah, that's the guy. Look at him. Poor sap. Probably has a family. 
Yeah, so Joe, what's the point of having this guy in the film? What's his purpose? Well, I thought you might want to know, so I got us all goofy hats to wear. Oh. The goofy friend is the guy who wears his hat sideways like this and always gets killed first in the haunted house. Like, guys, guys, hey, this isn't funny anymore. Guys! I'll let Kevin Murphy chime in one more time, and I quote, Joel, at the behest of Tom and Crow, delivers an exegesis of the Goofy Guy, the Arnold Stang-like character in today's movie. However, instead of valuable hermeneutical discourse, the guys put on goofy hats and glasses and gyrate a lot. Unquote. Now that I think about it, that sounds more like something Michael J. Nelson would write, but hey, what do I know? Anyway, Joel and the bots read some letters, then it's down to Deep 13. Larry thinks all future Mamie Van Doren films should be kept for their own personal viewing, but Dr. Forrester just sends him off to file the experiment notes. There's no stinger for this episode. The very first stinger, a short clip from the film at the end of the credits, doesn't come until episode 205 and will continue for the rest of the run of the show. Back to you, Jeff. You two, you, you look all shook. I got away from him. You mean you had to? He doesn't waste much time, does he? So he set the dogs on me. Well, I'll kill him, so help No, me. wait a minute. That won't do any good. Nobody will be able to help you then. Thank you very large, Nancy. You're real gone. You know, I don't have a problem with women dancing around and singing in their underwear, you know, but maybe that's just me. Anyway, you brought up one reason I find this film so enjoyable. I find it amusing when Hollywood producers try to appeal to the younger generation. I often wonder if the slang terms they used back then were real or just something created by the writers. Maybe it was something they heard their grandkids say or something, I don't know. When rock and roll exploded at the end of the 50s and at the same time drive-in movie theaters became huge, which of course were popular with the younger generation, it must have been a challenge for the old filmmakers to create something for them. And that's why I find it fun to look back at old exploitation films like this to see what they were doing. And like you pointed out, there was a whole slew of them on the old MST. Anyway, at least this one had a plot. Granted, it wasn't a very good plot, but it was a plot. And compared to some of the other films on Mystery Science Theater, well... Flash! Motion picture history is made as Stanley Kramer's production of On the Beach opens all over the world in unprecedented six-continent premieres. They didn't think we'd fight no matter what they did. And they were wrong. We fought. We expunged them. We didn't do such a bad job on ourselves. We were all doomed, you know. The whole silly, drunken, pathetic lot of us. We haven't got a chance. There is hope. There has to be hope. There's always hope. A little bit before I go. Oddly, when I was working on this episode, I was watching Pluto TV's MST3K channel, and Untamed Youth came on. Hmm, what a coincidence. Now, if you don't know about Pluto TV, it's a free streaming service that has both a Mystery Science Theater 3K and Rift Tracks channel. Now, they're not a sponsor of Celluloid Days, but if Mr. or Ms. Pluto is listening... And if you'd like to sponsor the show, just give me a call. I know you've got Drew Barrymore, but still, I can be bought. And if you out there have any thoughts on Untamed Youth or Mamie Van Doren, let me know. I'd love to hear your comments. 
You can send them to daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. Email me with your thoughts, opinions, suggestions, or whatever you want to say. We also have a Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And a Twitter page. It's at celluloid underscore days. I publish daily there. Next week, we're going to celebrate Australian Days by talking about the film On the Beach from 1959. This was suggested by my friend Russell, who of course lives in Australia. Apparently, in the year 1964, World War III devastated the Northern Hemisphere, killing all humans due to the nuclear fallout. The residents of Australia must come to terms with the fact that all life will be destroyed in a matter of months. That's a description I read. I've never seen it before, but I'm going to watch it this week. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Hey, thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll be back next Monday. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Your stupid minds, stupid, stupid. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can, and sing at the same time.